Chapter Two of Pioneers of France in the New World, Part Two Champlain and His Associates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pioneers of France in the New World by Francis Parkman. Part Two Samuel Champlain and His Associates. Chapter Two, La Roche, Champlain, de Mont, fifteen forty two to sixteen o four. Years rolled on. France, long tossed among the surges of civil commotion, plunged at last into a gulf of fratricidal war. Blazing hamlets, sacked cities, fields steaming with slaughter, profaned altars, and ravished maidens marked the track of the tornado. There was little room for schemes of foreign enterprise. Yet far aloof from siege and battle, the fishermen of the western ports still plied their craft on the banks of Newfoundland. Humanity, morality, decency might be forgotten, but codfish must still be had for the use of the faithful inland and on fast days. Still the wandering Eskimo saw the Norman and Breton sails hovering around some lonely headland, or anchored in fleets in the harbor of St. John, and still, through salt spray and driving mist, the fishermen dragged up the riches of the sea. In January and February, 1545, about two vessels a day sailed from French ports for Newfoundland. In 1565, Pedro Menendez complains that the French rule despotically in those parts. In 1578, there were a hundred and fifty French fishing vessels there, besides two hundred of other nations, Spanish, Portuguese, and English. Added to these were twenty or thirty Biscayne whalers. In 1607, there was an old French fisherman at Canso who had voyaged to these seas for forty-two successive years. But if the wilderness of ocean had its treasures, so too had the wilderness of woods. It needed but a few knives, beads, and trinkets, and the Indians would throng to the shore burdened with the spoils of their winter hunting. Fishermen threw up their old vocation for the more lucrative trade in bearskins and beaver skins. They built rude huts along the shores of Anticosti, where at that day the bison, it is said, could be seen wallowing in the sands. They outraged the Indians, they quarreled with each other, and this infancy of the Canadian fur trade showed rich promise of the disorders which marked its riper growth. Others, meanwhile, were ranging the gulf in search of walrus tusks, and the year after the Battle of Ivry, Sam Malo sent out a fleet of small craft in quest of this new prize. In all the western seaports, merchants and adventurers turned their eyes towards America, not like the Spaniards seeking treasures of silver and gold, but the more modest gains of codfish and train oil, beaver skins and marine ivory. San Malo was conspicuous above them all. The rugged Bretons loved the perils of the sea, and saw with a jealous eye every attempt to shackle their activity on this its favorite field. When in 1588 Jacques Noel and Estien Chaton the former a nephew of Cartier and the latter pretending to be so, gained a monopoly of the American fur trade for twelve years, 
such a clamor arose within the walls of San Malo that the obnoxious grant was promptly revoked. But soon a power was in the field against which all St. Malo might clamor in vain. A Catholic nobleman of Brittany, the Marquis de la Roche, bargained with the king to colonize New France. On his part he was to receive a monopoly of the trade and a profusion of worthless titles and empty privileges. He was declared Lieutenant General of Canada, Hochelaga, Newfoundland, Labrador, and the countries adjacent, with sovereign power within his vast and ill-defined domain. He could levy troops, declare war and peace, make laws, punish or pardon at will, build cities, forts, and castles, and grant out lands in fiefs, seigneuries, counties, viscounties, and baronies. Thus was a feat and cumbrous feudalism to make a lodgment in the new world. It was a scheme of high-sounding promise, but in performance less than contemptible. La Roche ransacked the prisons, and gathering thence a gang of thieves and desperadoes, embarked them in a small vessel, and set sail to plant Christianity and civilization in the West. Suns rose and set, and the wretched bark, deep freighted with brutality and vice, held on her course. She was so small that the convicts, leaning over her side, could wash their hands in the water. At length, on the gray horizon, they descried a long gray line of ridgy sand. It was Sable Island, off the coast of Nova Scotia. A wreck lay stranded on the beach, and the surf broke ominously over the long submerged arms of sand, stretched far out into the sea, on the right hand and the left. Here La Roche landed the convicts, forty in number, while with his more trusty followers he sailed to explore the neighboring coasts and choose a site for the capital of his new dominion, to which, in due time, he proposed to remove the prisoners. But suddenly a tempest from the west assailed him. The frail vessel was forced to run before the gale, which, howling on her track, drove her off the coast and chased her back towards France. Meanwhile, the convicts watched in suspense for the returning sail. Days passed, weeks passed, and still they strained their eyes in vain across the waste of ocean. La Roche had left them to their fate. Rueful and desperate, they wandered among the sand hills, through the stunted whortleberry bushes, the rank sand grass, and the tangled cranberry vines which filled the hollows. Not a tree was to be seen but they built huts of the fragments of the wreck. For food they caught fish in the surrounding sea, and hunted the cattle which ran wild about the island, sprung perhaps from those left here eighty years before by the Baron de Larry. They killed seals, trapped black foxes, and clothed themselves in their skins. Their native instincts clung to them in their exile, as if not content with inevitable miseries, they quarreled and murdered one another. Season after season dragged on. Five years elapsed, and of the forty, only twelve were left alive. Sand, sea, and sky. There was little else around them, though to break the dead monotony, the walrus would sometimes rear his half-human face and glistening sides on the reefs and sandbars. At length, on the far verge of the watery desert, they descried a sail. She stood on towards the island. A boat's crew landed on the beach, and the exiles were once more among their countrymen. 
When La Roche returned to France, the fate of his followers sat heavy on his mind. But the day of his prosperity was gone. A host of enemies rose against him and his privileges, and it is said that the Duc de Mercoeur seized him and threw him into prison. In time, however, he gained a hearing of the king, and the Norman pilot, chef d'hôtel, was dispatched to bring the outcasts home. He reached Sable Island in September 1603, and brought back to France eleven survivors, whose names are still preserved. When they arrived, Henry IV summoned them into his presence. They stood before him, says an old writer, like river gods of yore, for from head to foot they were clothed in shaggy skins, and beards of prodigious length hung from their swarthy faces. They had accumulated on their island a quantity of valuable furs. Of these, Chef d'Hôtel had robbed them. But the pilot was forced to disgorge his prey, and, with the aid of a bounty from the king, they were enabled to embark on their own account in the Canadian trade. To their leader, fortune was less kind. Broken by disaster and imprisonment, La Roche died miserably. In the meantime, on the ruin of his enterprise, a new one had been begun. Pongrave, a merchant of Saint-Malo, leagued himself with Chauvin, a captain of the navy, who had influence at court. A patent was granted to them, with the condition that they should colonize the country. But their only thought was to enrich themselves. At Tadoussac, at the mouth of the Sigeni, under the shadow of savage and inaccessible rocks, feathered with pines, firs, and birch trees, they built a cluster of wooden huts and storehouses. Here they left sixteen men to gather the expected harvest of firs. Before the winter was over, several of them were dead, and the rest scattered through the woods, living on the charity of the Indians. But a new era had dawned on France. Exhausted with thirty years of conflict, she had sunk at last to a repose, uneasy and disturbed, yet the harbinger of recovery. The rugged soldier whom, for the weal of France and of mankind, Providence had cast to the troubled surface of affairs, was throned in the Louvre, composing the strife of factions and the quarrels of his mistresses. The bear-hunting prince of the Pyrenees wore the crown of France, and to this day, as one gazes on the time-worn front of the Tuileries, above all other memories rises the small, strong finger the brow wrinkled with cares of love and war, the bristling moustache, the grizzled beard, the bold, vigorous, and withal somewhat odd features of the mountaineer of Warn. To few has human liberty owed so deep a gratitude or so deep a grudge. He cared little for creeds or dogmas. Impressible, quick in sympathy, his grim lip lighted often with a smile, and his war-worn cheek was no stranger to a tear. He forgave his enemies and forgot his friends. Many loved him, none but fools trusted him. Mingled of mortal good and ill, frailty and force, of all the kings who for two centuries and more had sat on the throne of France, Henry the Fourth alone was a man. Art, industry, and commerce, so long crushed and overborne, were stirring into renewed life, and a crowd of adventurous men, 
nurtured in war and incapable of repose, must seek employment for their restless energies in fields of peaceful enterprise. Two small, quaint vessels, not larger than the fishing craft of Gloucester and Marblehead, one was of twelve, the other of fifteen tons, held their way across the Atlantic, past the tempestuous headlands of Newfoundland and the St. Lawrence, and with adventurous knight-errantry glided deep into the heart of the Canadian wilderness. On board of one of them was the Breton merchant Pongrave, and with him a man of spirit widely different, a Catholic of good family, Samuel de Champlain, born in 1567 at the small seaport of Pronage on the Bay of Biscay. His father was a captain in the Royal Navy, where he himself seems also to have served, though during the war he had fought for the king in Brittany under the banners of Domain, Saint-Luc, and Brissac. His purse was small, his merit great, and Henry the Fourth, out of his own slender revenues, had given him a pension to maintain him near his person. But rest was penance to him. The war in Brittany was over, the rebellious Duc de Mercoeur was reduced to obedience, and the royal army disbanded. Champlain, his occupation gone, conceived a design consonant with his adventurous nature. He would visit the West Indies, and bring back to the king a report of those regions of mystery whence Spanish jealousy excluded foreigners, and where every intruding Frenchman was threatened with death. Here much knowledge was to be won, and much peril to be met. The joint attraction was resistless. The Spaniards, allies of the vanquished leaguers, were about to evacuate Blavet, their last stronghold in Brittany. Thither Champlain repaired, and here he found an uncle who had charge of the French fleet destined to take on board the Spanish garrison. Champlain embarked with them, and, reaching Cadiz, succeeded with the aid of his relative, who had just accepted the post of pilot-general of the Spanish marine, in gaining command of one of the ships about to sail for the West Indies under Don Francisco Colombo. At Dieppe there is a curious old manuscript, in clear, decisive, and somewhat formal handwriting of the sixteenth century, garnished with sixty-one colored pictures, in a style of art which a child of ten might emulate. Here one may see ports, harbors, islands, and rivers adorned with portraitures of birds, beasts, and fishes thereto pertaining. Here are Indian feasts and dances, Indians flogged by priests for not going to Mass, Indians burned alive for heresy, six in one fire, Indians working the silver mines. Here, too, are descriptions of natural objects, each with its illustrative sketch, some drawn from life and some from memory, as, for example, a chameleon with two legs. Others from hearsay, among which is the portrait of the griffin said to haunt certain districts of Mexico, a monster with the wings of a bat, the head of an eagle, and the tail of an alligator. This is Champlain's journal, written and illustrated by his own hand, in that defiance of perspective and absolute independence of the canons of art which marked the earliest efforts of the pencil. A true hero, after the chivalrous medieval type, 
his character was dashed largely with the spirit of romance. Though earnest, sagacious, and penetrating, he leaned to the marvelous, and the faith which was the life of his hard career was somewhat prone to overstep the bounds of reason and invade the domain of fancy, hence the erratic character of some of his exploits, and hence his simple faith in the Mexican griffin. His West Indian adventure occupied him more than two years. He visited the principal ports of the islands, made plans and sketches of them all after his fashion, and then, landing at Vera Cruz, journeyed inland to the city of Mexico. On his return he made his way to Panama. Here, more than two centuries and a half ago, his bold and active mind conceived the plan of a ship canal across the isthmus, by which, he says, the voyage to the South Sea would be shortened by more than fifteen hundred leagues. On reaching France he repaired to court, and it may have been at this time that a royal patent raised him to the rank of the untitled nobility. He soon wearied of the antechambers of the Louvre. It was here, however, that his destiny awaited him, and the work of his life was unfolded. Émer de Chastes, commander of the Order of St. John and governor of Dieppe, a gray-haired veteran of the civil wars, wished to mark his closing days with some notable achievement for France and the Church. To no man was the king more deeply indebted. In his darkest hour, when the hosts of the League were gathering round him, when friends were falling off, and the Parisians, exulting in his certain ruin, were hiring the windows of the Rue Saint-Antoine to see him led to the Bastille, de Chastes, without condition or reserve, gave up to him the town and castle of Dieppe. Thus was he enabled to fight beneath its walls the Battle of Arc, the first in a series of successes which secured his triumph. And he had been heard to say that to this friend in his adversity he owed his own salvation and that of France. De Chastes was one of those men who, amid the strife of factions and rage of rival fanaticism, make reason and patriotism their watchwords, and stand on the firm ground of a strong and resolute moderation. He had resisted the madness of leaguer and Huguenot alike. Yet, though a foe of the League, the old soldier was a devout Catholic, and it seemed in his eyes a noble consummation of his life to plant the cross and the fleur-de-lis in the wilderness of New France. Chauvin had just died after wasting the lives of a score or more of men in a second and third attempt to establish the fur trade at Tadoussac. De Chastes came to court to beg a patent of Henry the Fourth, and, says his friend Champlain, though his head was crowned with gray hairs as with years, he resolved to proceed to New France in person and dedicate the rest of his days to the service of God and his king. The patent, costing nothing, was readily granted, and de Chastes, to meet the expenses of the enterprise and forestall the jealousies which his monopoly would awaken among the keen merchants of the western ports, formed a company with the more prominent of them. Pongrave, who had some knowledge of the country, was chosen to make a preliminary exploration. This was the time when Champlain, fresh from the West Indies, appeared at court. De Chastes knew him well. Young, ardent, yet ripe in experience, 
a skillful seaman and a practiced soldier, he above all others was a man for the enterprise. He had many conferences with the veteran, under whom he had served in the royal fleet off the coast of Brittany. De Chaste urged him to accept a post in his new company, and Champlain, nothing loath, consented, provided always that permission should be had from the king, to whom, he says, I was bound no less by birth than by the pension with which his majesty honored me. To the king, therefore, de Chastes repaired. The needful consent was gained, and, armed with a letter to Pongrave, Champlain set out for Honfleur. Here he found his destined companion, and, embarking with him, as we have seen, they spread their sails for the west. Like specks on the broad bosom of the waters, the two pygmy vessels held their course up the lonely St. Lawrence. They passed abandoned Tadoussac, the channel of Orléans, and the gleaming cataract of Montmorency, the tenantless rock of Quebec, the wide lake of St. Peter and its crowded archipelago, till now the mountain reared before them its rounded shoulder above the forest plain of Montréal. All was solitude. Hochelaga had vanished, and of the savage population that Cartier had found here sixty-eight years before, no trace remained. In its place were a few wandering Algonquins of different tongue and lineage. In a skiff with a few Indians, Champlain essayed to pass the rapids of St. Louis. Oars, paddles, and poles alike proved vain against the foaming surges, and he was forced to return. On the deck of his vessel, the Indians drew rude plans of the river above, with its chain of rapids, its lakes and cataracts, and the baffled explorer turned his prow homeward, the objects of his mission accomplished, but his own adventurous curiosity unsated. When the voyagers reached Havre de Grasse, a grievous blow awaited them. The commander de Chastes was dead. His mantle fell upon Pierre du Guast, Sieur de Mont, gentleman in ordinary of the king's chamber, and governor of Paul's. Undaunted by the fate of La Roche, this nobleman petitioned the king for leave to colonize L'Acadie, or Acadie, a region defined as extending from the fortieth to the forty-sixth degree of north latitude, or from Philadelphia to beyond Montreal. The king's minister, Sully, as he himself tells us, opposed the plan, on the ground that the colonization of this northern wilderness would never repay the outlay. But de Mont gained his point. He was made lieutenant-general in Acadia, with viceregal powers, and withered feudalism with her antique forms and tinseled follies, was again to seek a new home among the rocks and pine-trees of Nova Scotia. The foundation of the enterprise was a monopoly of the fur trade, and in its favor all past grants were unceremoniously annulled. Saint-Malo, Rouen, Dieppe, and Rochelle greeted the announcement with unavailing outcries. Patents granted and revoked, monopolies decreed and extinguished, had involved the unhappy traders in ceaseless embarrassment. De Mont, however, preserved de Chastes' old company and enlarged it, thus making the chief malcontents sharers in his exclusive rights and converting them from enemies into partners. 
A clause in his commission empowered him to impress idlers and vagabonds as material for his colony, an ominous provision of which he largely availed himself. His company was strangely incongruous. The best and the meanest of France were crowded together in his two ships. Here were thieves and ruffians dragged on board by force, and here were many volunteers of condition and character, with Baron de Poutrincourt and the indefatigable Champlain. Here, too, were Catholic priests and Huguenot ministers, for, though de Mont was a Calvinist, the church, as usual, displayed her banner in the van of the enterprise, and he was forced to promise that he would cause the Indians to be instructed in the dogmas of Rome. End of chapter 2 Recording by Christine Dufour, Pioneer, California